the season of Advent is a special time in the church calendar. Um, at, at its core, Advent is meant to build anticipation. Anticipation of a coming day, of a coming king, of a coming salvation, of a coming redemption. But I think we all have grown to, to know and to feel the weight of the disappointment that sets in come December 26th. All the pomp and circumstance are over, and you know life just kind of settles back into its normal routines. Um, I want to encourage us this morning that that's, that's a healthy disappointment that we feel. It's the, it's the groaning of our souls wanting more from this life than we can ever have. It's, it's wanting something that this world cannot give us. So I encourage us this morning as, as we look at a, a, a beautiful passage of scripture to look at it in light of that fact, that disappointment in this world is coming. In various, various forms, in various ways, it is coming. Disappointment is not always bad. It's meant to refine our souls to refine our desires, and to draw us closer to the one true and living God. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, continuing our walk through the story of the birth of Christ. We're going to spend most of our time this morning focusing on verses 46 through 56, but we're going to start reading a little bit earlier in the chapter just to give us some context of where we are and what we will be discussing this morning. So if you'll stand with me as we read the Word of God. We'll start in verse 39. The Word of the Lord through Luke says this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a, cha- to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy." And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary says in response, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this this passage that extols your character upon us. God, we pray that as we 
as we read and as we study this passage this morning, that you would make clear to us your glory and your intent in this passage. And Father, we humbly ask that you would grant us the clarity and the courage to carry this passage with us, not only through the rest of the Advent season, but into a new year. It'll be full of new challenges, new struggles, new joys. God, we pray that Mary's words will ring in our ears. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. So for those of you um, who come here regularly, generally, Abby fills this pulpit. He was busy this weekend becoming Dr. Abby Todd. So when you see him, you can offer him congratulations for that um, accomplishment in his life. Um, it has come with great toil. Um, that can be assured. So um, for those of you who have heard me teach before, anytime we approach scripture, there's two questions for me that we have to answer. Number one, what does the text mean? And number two, what does the text mean for us in 2019, almost 2020, Oxford, Georgia? So very simply, that's the two questions we're going to try to answer today. So first, what does the text mean? Storyline-wise, there's not a whole lot happening in this passage of Scripture. There's not a lot of characters. There's not a lot of interaction. It's primarily Mary's monologue, Mary's song of praise um, to the Lord. But to give us a little context, let's take a step back. Book of Luke is addressed to a man named Theophilus. We do not know a ton about Theophilus. He is mentioned here. He is also mentioned in Acts 1. And beyond that, there's not a whole lot that we know. We know Theophilus is a Gentile. Um, he was not a native-born Jew. We also know he was a man of some standing in the community. There's speculation that perhaps he was um, a Roman guard or some part of Roman nobility, um, but all of that is a bit of conjecture. We do know that he did have some standing in the community, however, which is why Mary's words here about the powerful and the rich and the strong are so poignant when messaged to Theophilus. Narrowing in a little more closely on this story, just a few verses before we started reading, the angel had just visited Mary and had foretold of her coming pregnancy in which she would deliver the Savior of the world. Um, that angel also told Mary of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the one who would pave the way for the Savior to come. And that's where we pick up here. Mary goes to Elizabeth's house, to the house of Zechariah. When Mary announces herself, the womb in Elizabeth, or the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy because John the Baptist is recognizing what is before him, even in the womb, even at that young age. Mary's monologue here is what is known in the, the Catholic world and in the high church world as the Magnificent. That's going to be weird language to us who are more a low church type of people. That's fine. <laughs> but this passage has great historical significance, um, both in Catholic tradition as well as in um, evangelical tradition, this, this is a, a much-praised passage of Scripture. I, mean, I don't think you have to read it very many times to figure out why. Um, the, the beautiful thing about this passage is you have Mary, Jesus Christ not even born yet, in her womb, 
essentially preaching the gospel to us. She's telling us of what is to come. She's telling us of what this, this baby will do for the world. Mary begins her song describing her disposition. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's easy, right? It's easy with any passage of scripture like that to read that and just kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Like, next, please. Like, I get it. Like, she's in a good place, right? Like, that's generally how we process things in our mind. And while that's true, there's a lot more here to unwrap and to uncover. But we aren't going to do that now. Because Mary moves on from there and, and lists and extols the character of God for the next eight verses. And we're going to unpack that first. And then we're going to come back to this. Because there, there's great significance in these words. There's great significance in Mary saying that her soul magnifies the Lord. There's great significance in her saying that she is rejoicing in God her Savior. Mary moves on in her song, and she essentially breaks down her praise of the Lord into two categories. One is, is a recognition and a praise of the duality of the gospel to come. Now, what does that mean? Big words, sorry. English language, we have to make choices, so we'll just explain it. So what do we mean by duality of the gospel? Is The gospel is one message. Jesus Christ, born, lived a perfect life died a gruesome death on a cross, raised from the dead, offers to us the gift of life, hope, and eternal life. There's one gospel message. That gospel message is, is powerful in two different ways. That's the duality. And in two ways that are seemingly contradictory. So on one hand, you have Mary saying, Look at the hope that this brings me. It has brought me from my lowly estate. But on the other hand, it breaks down the strong. It deprives the rich. So what's happening here? This is an odd thing. You have a single event seemingly doing two contradictory things at the same time. This is significant. Right? Because this to Mary 2,000 years ago and to us today serves to cut right to the core of human nature. Because we both feel that tug, right? In any given day, we swing from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And what Mary says here is regardless of where you find yourself, the gospel is powerful and effective. It speaks to every person in every circumstance if they will listen. To break it down a little further, just to look at the details, we see this message of hope for the, the weak and the poor. If you look at verse 48... Mary says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself. Verse 50, she goes on, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And then in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. The other side, humility and despair. 
Verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, a brief comment. Most of these make sense on the surface. This one's a little strange. What, is, what does the passage mean? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So Mary's hearkening back here to the Tower of Babel. And that it, as we as human beings seek to elevate ourselves to the stature of God, that our hearts become confused. So Mary's hearkening back here to an older Old Testament passage, which we'll add this quick note here. Much of this passage is doing that. If you, if you read here what Mary is saying and you go back to 1 Samuel 2 and read Hannah's song to the Lord, there's striking similarities. If you, if you keep reading on, we'll keep reading further on in this passage. Mary refers back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is yet again deeply steeped in Jewish tradition and Jewish culture, but Mary also understood the scriptures. We'll, talk, we'll unpack that more, but we need to take note of that. That this song of Mary, this praise of Mary, is largely enabled because of Mary's knowledge of the scriptures and her knowledge of the character of God. I think the message here is clear for us. That when we, when we find ourselves in the lowest of lows, at the depths of, of human existence, that there is a Savior that offers us hope. But when we swell with pride, when we think to ourselves, oh, look what I have done, when we seek to build our own kingdoms and we seek to bring ourselves glory, the gospel says, oh, no. Not you. You have done nothing. You are but filthy rags. But God, but God is the one who does all good things. The message here is, is a bit nuanced at the same time, though, right? So what's the difference? What Truly, what is the difference? What is the difference between those of us in lowly estate or when we find ourselves in lowly estate and those of us who are proud or when we find our own selves filled with pride, what's the difference? I think it's easy. It's easy to look at this passage and think only in terms of physical realities. So things like depression. Things like suffering. Depths of human existence. On the other end, things like wealth, power, prestige. But that would be an overly simplistic understanding of this passage. Because Mary is not talking about a physical reality necessarily. She's talking about a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality being that even if someone is rich, they can still be lowly. And even if someone is poor, they can still be lowly and great in the kingdom of God. So do not allow this passage simply to become an encouragement to go and do good things. Should we do good things? Yes, absolutely. 
But ultimately, this is a passage for the condition of our souls. This is a song from Mary's heart. And that's where it should connect with us. We should not walk away from this passage saying, I need to go give all that I have to the poor. You may do that. But what this passage is intending to say is that you must find yourself at all times and in all places dependent upon the God who saves. This is not a physical reality. This is a call and a cry to dependence upon a living and powerful God. And that is the crux of the gospel. Exchanging our pursuits, our power, our strength for the strength of a God who saves, who loves perfectly, who is good. That is the core of the gospel. To give it up, to not pursue but to rest in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of that's that's Mary's first category of extolling the character of God. She she then has a second kind of category or group of ways that she is praising God in this passage. And it really is just the attributes of God, some of the attributes of God. In verse 49. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Here she's proclaiming the greatness of God. She's proclaiming the oneness of God. She's saying that only God could have done these things. Only he is great enough, and only he is mighty enough to do these things. Verse 54 and 55, she goes on. She says, he has helped his servant Israel and remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She's extolling God's faithfulness here. The the reference here back to Abraham is a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant where God in Genesis 12 says to Abraham or to Abram at that point, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As God's promised to Abraham, 2,000 years before we find Mary here. I think it's easy when you read ancient texts to think that, you know, it was like five years between these two things. No, 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 this... The Abrahamic covenant at this point is 2,000 years old. God makes this promise to Abraham, and the nation of Israel looks for the fulfillment of that covenant for 2,000 years. And here you have Mary sitting there knowing what the fulfillment's going to be. The nation of Israel is looking for a king. They want armies. They want crowns. They want a ruler. That is what they want. They want this covenant to be fulfilled politically. But yet again, it's not about the physical. It's not about the political. It's about the spiritual. All the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham because of the gift of Jesus Christ.
So that brings us back to the beginning. That brings us back to Mary's disposition at the beginning of the psalm. Because of these things, because of the character and the attributes of God, because of the power of the gospel to meet us wherever we are, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. As Mary's soul remembers her Savior who brings hope to the weak, humility to the haughty, strength to the oppressed, Greatness to the mundane, perfection to all that is good, right, and just, mercy to those who fear him, and fulfillment to ancient covenants. Her soul swells to magnify the Lord, and her spirit rejoices in the grandeur of his ways. As hard as it is to believe, as hard as it is to believe this, what Mary describes here. In these two, these two phrases, in verses 46 and 47, this is the height of human existence here on earth. There is no higher disposition or state than this, which to us is scandalous, right? That is scandalous. That is shocking. I'm going to stand here before you in 2019, almost 2020, in a church in Oxford, Georgia, and tell you that the height of human existence is this. What's the natural question? Well, she didn't do anything. She didn't do anything. You're right, she did. She's done nothing. Except remember the character and the goodness of God. That's shocking. That is shocking. What, what this passage is saying, what Mary is saying in her song, is that, she is great because of nothing she has done. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing she has done. Mary is completely content and filled with joy simply because she has found what her soul seeks. She is lost in the rapture of a God who has no beginning and no end and whose power and faithfulness is on full display for the world to see. She is not striving. She is not seeking. She is not building. She is simply resting in the greatness of her Savior. Mary's not the only one to hit at this, right? Paul in Philippians 3 says something very similar. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul saying the same thing. All that I had, all that I had as a member of nobility in Roman culture, all of that rubbish when compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's staggering to me. That is, that, that is staggering to me. 
I think we all can know and can say and can admit that much of how we see ourselves in this world is dependent upon our output. What can we do? What can we know? Who can we teach? What can we make? What can we create? What can we build? That's what we're, but this was driven into us to be. And here Mary and here Paul are saying, we don't care. It's all rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul and Mary had been shown the same truth that Jesus Christ is the treasure and the prize. There is no greater thing. He does not ask us to strive after something. He instead asks us to rest humbly in him and allow him to see us, fill us, and strengthen us. So what does this passage mean for us today? What does it mean sitting here 2019, Advent season, Oxford, Georgia. A few thoughts. First, and I think probably most importantly, this is a a call to us that we not think more highly of ourselves than is required and allowed through the Holy Scriptures. Mary's song makes abundantly clear God's disdain for those who seek their own greatness and their own glory. When when Mary's talking of those who are rich, when God is talking of those who have power, when Mary's Mary's talking of these things, and then she, she encourages us with the fact that God has brought those things low. It's clear that God will not tolerate us building our own kingdoms. The Tower of Babel is great, is a great example of this. They wanted to be like God, and they were destroyed because of it. The challenge to us is to remain humble servants who simply seek the knowledge of a great and glorious God. It's that simple. And to be honest with you, I see it here and I say that, and it's really hard for me to believe it. Because it's so ingrained in me and I believe in us to do all these things. Not, and not, not to say that doing things is bad. Doing things is neutral. But this is hard. Like, I mean, in some ways it's freeing. It's like, ah. Our call to glorify God is to know God. But in some ways, that's terrifying. Because it is completely and utterly contrary to how we live our lives and what our society tells us. There's a second challenge for us here. And that is that that we do not allow other things to take the place of King Jesus. I think a lot of us in some ways understand the message that life should not be about us. So if you're thinking of hurdles, that's kind of hurdle one. But the moment we have that realization, which has happened all across human history, all the way back to Aristotle, before him, It's easy for something else to slide in there. We get ourselves out of the way, 
And then something fills that void. My hope and my prayer is that it's King Jesus. But that's a hard thing to do. That's a really, really hard thing to do. Not that it's impossible. It is possible. But I think we just have to live with the awareness that we are but a a moment away from King Jesus being taken off the throne, off his rightful place as king of our lives and something else filling that place. It's subtle. And then we chase it for years. And then, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not where we wanted to be. King Jesus back. In a moment, he's off. Chase something else for years. And all the while, Mary, Paul, Jesus are all saying, just know Jesus Christ. Which sounds boring, right? It's like, it's just one person. Jesus says, have faith, pursue, know the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, We need to acknowledge this duality that exists in the gospel and allow it to be effective in our lives. We, in any given day, swing on that pendulum from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And when we're at our lowest of lows, we need to turn to our God and say to him that we know you are the God who gives all good things. We know you are the God who loves us and who sees us and who knows us. And we're at our highest of highs, we would be well served to remember that we are serving the God who changes the minds and hearts of kings like the flow of water, who will bring low the haughty, who will strip down the rich, who will break down the proud. Third, we need to be aware of our own disposition. There's really, right, in this passage, there's only three dispositions that really fit in. One is Mary's current disposition of glorifying God and praising God. That's the disposition that we are called to. The other disposition is the debased and the low, the lowly, where we're, we're broken, we're, we're at the depths of our human existence, and then there's the haughty and proud. When we make our poorest decisions and when we seek to build our own kingdoms. Our task is to allow the scriptures, remember the backdrop here, that Mary had extensive knowledge of the scriptures. All throughout her song, she's hearkening back to the Torah and to scriptures that had come before. She knew those scriptures and she allowed it to be effective in her life. So we need to allow the scriptures and those around us in our biblical communities to help us diagnose our disposition. There should be no fear in a community of believers of us going to our brother or to our sister and saying, listen, brother, you are filled with pride and you know, 
you well know that the Lord will bring you low. By the same token, we should, as we look upon our brothers and sisters in suffering, go to them and extol the greatness and the goodness of God. Brother, sister, I know that you are at the depths of human suffering, but there is a God who is great. And there is a God who sees and a God who knows and a God who heals. Fourth, this, this one is hard for me and I think hard for many of us, is we must humbly rest and stop striving. All, all the things that we do, all the things that we do, all the things that fill our weeks, all the things that choke out the glory of the risen king, all of those things we have to lay to the side. Now, this is not a call to be slothful. This is not a call to be lazy. But this is a call to realize that even in our work, that even in our doing, that we must be resting in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do not work as those who have no hope. We should not be ruthless people in our workplaces because there's no reason to be ruthless. What are we going to gain? We already have the greatest treasure in the world. We have King Jesus. So if people want to trample one another on their way to whatever broken destination they're headed, let them do it. Let them do it. But we are not called to be a part of it. We are called to work. We are called to redemptive work. But we're not called for that work to be our primary focus and for that work to be that which defines us. We are defined by serving the God who sees the lowly, loves the lowly, and who brings low the proud. Paul yet again echoes the same challenge to us in 1 Corinthians 10. This is the passage where Paul proclaims to us that no matter what we do, we should do all to the glory of God. That, that passage, we hear it and we like put it on the poster on the wall and you know, hang it over the table. Think, oh, that's, that's, that's nice. That's, that's, yet again, that is scandalous to us. It should be scandalous to us. What Paul is saying is that whether you are preaching the gospel, building a building, managing people, all of that is the same. It's all doing. It's all neutral. What matters is if you have King Jesus on the throne of your heart. And if you have King Jesus on the throne of your heart, as you do those things, then you will bring glory to God. But you could stand here in this pulpit, and if King Jesus is not on the throne of your heart, it's all it's rubbish. It's useless. 
Now, God may use it for good things, but the action itself is not what matters. What matters is whether King Jesus is on his throne and we are seeking to know and to love him. Lastly, we must allow the character of God to nourish our souls and produce in us a soul that magnifies the Lord and rejoices in his presence. Those of us who are familiar with the Westminster Catechism, the first question in the Catechism has always brought me great angst. First question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does that mean? What does that mean? I, I, need, I need like a bullet lists like do A, do B, do C, D, do E equals glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not how it works. Yet again, God is not calling us to do. He is not concerned with our output. He is concerned with the condition of our souls. So How do we we bring that to pass? How do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? I think Mary's answer here in Luke 1, Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians and in Philippians is this, that it is simply our task to know the character and the nature of our Savior, to praise him because of that character, and then to allow our souls to be fully satisfied and content with the bliss of knowing him. Join me in prayer. Father, we are, we are humbled and thankful that you are a God who did not say to us, Go and do all these things. You do not say to us, go and become. You instead say to us, come and see. Come and see that I am the living God. Come and find here the nourishment that your soul desires. So God, we pray during this Advent season when so much seems to be dependent upon output. When you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to be at this party and you have to be at that event and you have to do da-da-da-da-da, all of those things. God, we, we, we humbly beg that you show us what it means to keep King Jesus on his throne And for us to pursue knowing him and for us to have faith that in knowing him we will find what our soul truly longs for. Father, we ask now that as we we sing back to you in song the truths that you have shown us in your scriptures that we will have in our hearts and in our minds a spirit of praise and a spirit of thankfulness for your character, 
for the work of your gospel and for the gift of your son. In your precious holy name we pray, amen.